0: hello and welcome to another episode of two hearts a new who podcast i'm callum
1: and i'm james and this is the only podcast where we invite you to burn with us but not in a gay way every week here on two hearts we take a look at another episode from the doctor who revival and this week we are tackling two episodes that are definitely in series three the lazarus experiment and 42 callum how familiar are you with outdated 2007 references to then hit tv shows
0: not at all which is going to make this episode just a bit more boomer like
1: great welcome back everyone it has been a hot minute since we have had a chance to talk to you folks i mean granted within our release schedule it's only been like an extra week you haven't heard from us but for us it feels like it's been a dog's age um so i guess before we get started in a general sense callum how's life
0: i've been pretty good i've been pretty good i've, I've done a lot since we last recorded and uh that's my fault viewer listener whatever um because i have moved house and also delivered a whole festival since we last spoke and I'm a bit tired, but otherwise full of beans, ready to be talking about Doctor Who. Ready to be talking about two very low stakes episodes of Doctor Who to get back <laughs> into the show. Um, yeah, how are you, James?
1: Yeah, look, I'm 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 big time chilling. I'm doing all right. Uh it's just really nice to be back. Um, I'm glad that we're coming back with these two particular episodes because uh, you know, let's be honest. Um Look, we're gonna get through. It. We're gonna get to all of that in just a sec. But uh, it has been a while since we've been able to talk to you guys about Doctor Who news, so we're just gonna touch on uh, not not necessarily the most pressing of Doctor Who news stories this week, but um, more details have emerged about Christopher Eccleston's Big Finish
0: return. Yes, Chris Eccleston is back on Big Finish. He's doing some audio dramas, and it was well, I think revealed um, that the synopses for his three stories. Uh, I won't read them out, but we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and it doesn't give too much away about what the what the story will be like. Um, but it definitely confirms that he will be traveling with new people, new characters, new settings. Nothing that could quantifiably be tied back to the RTD era other than his character. Um, the one thing I... I think this was already announced, but I did notice it was written directed produced by uh nicholas briggs who to big Finish is he's the uh, i want to say uh creative director of big finish but he is also in doctor who t- on television he's the voice of the daleks uh, and also the voice of skaldak the ice warrior which is kind of fun um oh i love that guy yeah pretty cool right <clears throat> and so to hear that he was the creator behind this series uh I was already going to buy it, but now I'm extra excited to buy and listen to it. Um, youngs, the only other bit of news we have is that, obviously, it was International Women's Week uh, since recording this. Well, since you'll be listening to it. Um, but some of the behind-the-scenes cast and crew uh, shared their thoughts about uh, Doctor Who uh, working in television um, on that day. It did just get me thinking about what a chance we were robbed of of an uh, all-female TARDIS crew, but I have to make my peace with that now, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I know just what you mean. Um, like with the the news story and like the tweet with it or I don't know whatever it was, they put up this like promo image of Yaz and the Doctor like side by side, touching shoulders and looking at each other, being all like, "Ooh, we're sisters!" And it's like, yeah, but they could have been lovers. Um, but look,
0: <laughs> <laughs> they could have just been together. <laughs> general, they could have just been traveling. They, they, they could have just
1: been together. Exactly right. Yeah, there is just like a lot of mispotential. I feel in this era of the show particularly, and it, it just makes me like. Uh, Like, a moment like International Women's Day, when um, Doctor Who is able to sort of be like, yeah, look, you know, we've got a woman in the role now. She's been in this role since, like, 2017, like, and that's been really fantastic and whatnot. Um, But the driving creative forces of the show are still predominantly coming from very, like, uh, let's say, traditional BBC voices. Um, And so... I I look Uh, at the progress that they have made with the casting of Jodie Whittaker and I'm really happy with that, but I just can't help but feel like, yeah, but when's like, basically like when, when do you let a woman run the show? Like when do you properly get a woman's perspective in the DNA of the show itself, as opposed to just hmm. casting diversely?
0: It's in moments like this that I'm reminded of Lisa Simpson, where she says, um, your next heir need not be a girl. In this phallocentric society, well, well, I don't know what phallocentric means, but no (laughs) girls.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does feel a little bit that way. Um, but look, still, like, obviously, Mandip Gill and Jodie Whittaker are absolutely lovely, and this, like, Radio Times piece is, you know, it's it's definitely, it's sweet. Um, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the strides that they have made already. So, um, you know, go and give that a read if you want a little bit of a pick-me-up. Um, but I think that's about it for the news.
0: Yep, so that's our Doctor Who news for this week. Now, let's talk about a couple of episodes of Doctor Who <laughs> I can't do it
1: <laughs> I hope you're ready for a couple of episodes of Doctor Who <laughs> now nah, rip- look obviously when it, we don't want to bait you guys into thinking that you're about to experience something that you're not but um, let's just, let's just uh, get right into it with Lazarus experiment tonight I'm going
0: to perform a miracle something's wrong I'm 76 years old and I am reborn! This is a friend of mine. Lovely to meet you, Mrs. Jones. It's Hish. Your people are in serious danger! You need to get out of here right now! No, get away from her! The Lazarus
1: Experiment is the sixth episode of the third season of the Doctor Who Revival. It is directed by Richard Clark and written by Stephen Greenhorn. Uh, The episode sees the Doctor bring Martha back to modern-day London in an attempt to basically cut their journey short. Um, But before he can do so, uh, there is a man on the television called uh, something Lazarus, I forget his first name, um, and he's like, hey, tonight at this massive party, I'm gonna change what it means to be human, so, uh, the doctor goes along with Martha to the party, because Martha's sister is also working for uh, Mr. Lazarus, um, at the party, Lazarus uses this, like, big machine to basically de-age himself, so he goes from being, like, I don't know, in his 70s to in his 30s, <clears throat> um, At this point, the Doctor's like, yo, this technology is obviously something that you shouldn't have. Um, Martha's family are also there, and they're like, oh, this Doctor's a bit of a weird guy, Martha, maybe you shouldn't go with him. But before any of this can get resolved, um, because of the process that uh, Lazarus has done to his body, he starts to mutate in a very Resident Evil monster kind of way and becomes this massive, like, scorpion beast thing. Uh, Chaos ensues as, obviously, the the requisite running up and down corridors and whatnot. Uh, Eventually, the Doctor turns the energy of the machine back onto Lazarus it turns him back into more of a quote-unquote I guess like stable human form uh but it doesn't last and inevitably Martha her sister and the doctor get uh they chase him down to a cathedral where they use the loud church bells as a means of distracting him and they push him off a ledge or something and he dies uh the Lazarus experiment everybody what did you think Callum Uh,
0: uh, uh, um I want to ask you a question James yeah Why is the doctor so interested in gatekeeping immortality?
1: It's an odd one, isn't it? Um, because, obviously, so Lazarus does what he does, um, and it's the Doctor's purview to basically travel through time and space and stop evil people from doing evil things. It's like the, the bare bones of the show, right? And so he shows up at, to Earth at this time, and unbeknownst to him, like, yeah, there's like a capitalism element to the whole thing, but as we've seen from the Doctor's relationship to space capitalism, it's it's a bit willy-nilly. He doesn't necessarily care about seizing the means of production or anything like that. So we know it's not, like, ideologically driven why he wants to stop Lazarus. It's the same thing he does when he encounters Jack's immortality. He just is so disgusted by the concept that anybody else could grasp immortality um that he feels like he has to not only put a stop to it but righteously put a stop to it and so this episode includes a lot of big speeches which obviously the show loves David Tennant doing where he's just pontificating on the fact that like you've gone too far you're a madman this power's well out of your realm of control but for some reason it's within his realm of control um and it's a dissonance that the show doesn't know what to do with
0: you're right to say It's righteous. Like, his attitude in those moments uh, is played very- Yeah, like, I can't think of another word, like, righteously. Um, And with Jack as well, that's another thought I hadn't uh, had. Um, I think it's just that, like, with both of those instances, it's the Doctor- Like, you can sort of surface-level read it as the Doctor um, having a problem with aberrations of the natural law of beings- um, but then I also think about well, now we have a doctor who is an entirely fabricated like doesn't even know where they came from. Are they an aberration of law as all of time lords like aberrations of nature? I'm going off down well, different I mean- path. <laughs>
1: No, no, like, I I think that's actually a really good point, especially in the wake of the timeless children, which is an interesting thing to bring up in an episode where we're going to be talking about Chris Chibnall later, but, like, the Doctor's own history is now something that the Doctor would normally show up to stop, and so that kind of throws everything into this odd balance. Even if, like, I mean, obviously when they wrote this uh, version of the show, they didn't know what was going to happen to the lore in the future and whatnot. Um, But I think that there is, like, in the way that this episode and generally this era doesn't really know how to treat David Tennant's Doctor's God complex until the very end, um, what they've done with the Timeless Children also doesn't quite grasp the show's odd relationship uh, with the Doctor as an authority figure in the galaxy um, who is, as as you put to me tonight and as many people have apparently put before in smarter people in better bits of writing than we could ever manage, um, the Doctor is safeguarding uh, the privilege of eternal life.
0: Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think if you think about Time Lord Society, where the Doctor comes from, <clears throat> the kind of, like, privileges and um suppositions he would have grown up with uh you can definitely see that he is he he's he's a time lord both as species and title and that Lord aspect he he mm. has no problem with throwing around even at the same time as well um you know denouncing the military or capitalism or whatever issue he has that to encounter that week in space um so there is a very odd hypocrisy and inconsistency that is baked into his character and uncommented on and i don't know i think we probably have encountered this before and just not noticed it um but yeah we definitely picked up on it this week in lieu of nothing else to talk about
1: (laughs) yeah like i think there's a reason we opened with a topic as as big as that one when we talk about the lazarus experiment because it is an episode that functions Um, infinitely better as a launching pad for larger questions about the show than as an episode itself. Um, So if we do want to dial it back a little bit, um, just in a general sense, how do you feel about the Lazarus experiment as 43 minutes of television?
0: Look, yeah, it's definitely 43 minutes of television um, that I watched (laughs) as a 13 year old. And then again, as a 27 year old, Um, it's definitely an episode in this season. I, I, my sheer
1: i watched it on (laughs) stan.com um
0: (laughs) i actually watched it on britbox
1: uh oh that's right you're a fancy britbox boy now i am a fancy he he doesn't need my uh my stan login anymore folks
0: and i have my own stan account but that's neither here nor there and also speaking to the like sheer there's a whole different topic about like streaming services and how out of control they're getting at the moment but anyway oh absolutely um Like, my sheer inability to find things to say about this episode is a marker of just, like, how little I regard this story. I just, I never think about it. I don't, I don't rewatch it. I have rewatched it several times, but it's just in the course of, like, watching this season. It's never with any anticipation. This story fills me with such boredom. (laughs) um yeah and i don't want to start with that note but like this is how i felt as a child and as an adult like it didn't grasp my attention then and it doesn't now and so if it's not working on either of those levels then maybe that's me or maybe it's this episode i'm inclined to think it's the latter what do you think
1: um, yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> like, I think the, the the Lazarus Experiment's worst sin is that it's just entirely unremarkable. Um, it, it's, like, the writing isn't particularly strong. The character, like, the anim- the monster design of the week isn't particularly strong. The camera work isn't interesting. Uh, it, it just, it exists as an episode of Doctor Who. Um, it does further bolster some issues that we're having with martha in a in a pretty egregious way um but we'll, we'll get to that i guess when we get to the characterization um, i think just in, in a broad general speaking sense um i said this to you the other day but like i find myself constantly by the time that they leave like they've got a big like james bond-esque party where or like you know it's a bunch of like all the hoity-toity and scientists are all gathering about the new the new fucking thing um and you know there's like that entire thrust of the episode happens and he you know polarizes the machine or whatever big blue blast happens and Lazarus turns back from his big scorpion form into a human form gets carted away in an ambulance and you're like oh it's the climax of the episode and then I'm like oh no wait there's like a fourth act that goes on in the cathedral um which every time that I'm surprised or I forget that there's a fourth act to something I know there's an issue with the pacing um and Watching this episode, you just kind of slip into the like a malaise. You're just kinda of like, oh, I guess this is happening now. Oh, now this is happening. It and- doesn't feel particularly organic or um like essential in its uh what it was the word I'm looking for. Like there's no tension in, in what it's trying to do, basically.
0: You're right. And I think you've picked on something very crucial about this episode, which is that it just is a poorly conceived idea from the beginning. And that shows in its plotting. Because, like, this is as close to a straight action, uh, science fiction action thriller the show Mm. has gotten in a a long time. Purely because it is just scenes of investigation and running uh, and action. Yeah. And the meat in between of Martha and her family is... It's so, so thin as to be, like completely insubstantial um and so when you get to that point like you did where you have the sort of the the death of lazarus but then the twist that he's alive and in the cathedral your reaction i believe is entirely justified because it's like a a doctor who episode like i'm not saying you can't do these kinds of twists and reveals but you you are sort of setting up a story where there is just nothing in between. There's no filler. There's uh, not filler. I don't mean filler in the negative sense, in the mm. in the sense that like the richness that gives an otherwise generic episode uh, some substance and some memorability um, is just not there. And so yeah. you get to that point and you're like, I want this to be done. <laughs> I don't actually want to go on to this church because I'm not enjoying this ride at all. Um
1: exactly right. It's
0: and I feel like a massive part
1: of that is that it tries simultaneous to simultaneously to be that action thing while also I, I I get the impression and like no no shade to Greenhorn at all. I'm not even sure if he's written anything else for the show. I'm sure you can speak to that in a minute. I'm about to. But like Yeah, okay, great. Um but I, I definitely get the impression that they think this is a much smarter episode than it actually is, um, and it it stems from literally calling him Lazarus. Um, mm. From that point on, and I mean, and that's the very fucking beginning point of this entire issue. Is that like it's. It's like Baby's first foray into quote-unquote philosophy and theming and whatnot. It's like, ooh, what if there was a scientist who was constantly bringing himself back from the brink and had survived all these horrific things in his life, because he was alive during the Blitz, um, and his name was Lazarus. And it's <sighs> like, this isn't cute. <laughs> like,
0: It's not. It's so not. And if anyone was actually interested to watch Doctor Who stories about immortality, I'd, I'd urge you to seek out the 25th think it's 25th no uh the 20th series of doctor who because that has modern undead which is one of my favorite stories ever and it's about exactly what you're talking about which is like a, a a ship full of scientists who experiment on themselves to try and stop the aging process and end up becoming these mutant creatures hmm. i fucking adore that story that cool. a lot of people don't like it but fuck them um and you've also got <laughs> the five doctors which is another story about like the ills of immortality which is done in, in a way that doesn't as we said at the top of this episode, like called into question the doctor's own privileges. Um,
1: Wait, is, is the five doctors the one where they all get summoned to the, the games?
0: Yeah. And remember at the end, spoilers, everyone with Barusa, where he's like, <laughs> I seek immortality. And yeah, and they're like, have it. And then he's turned into stone
1: fucking freaky turn into stone on on the bed yeah that that is a fantastic special um that is like that to me was when i was a kid i was like oh this is like the doctor who movie like this is the avengers of doctor who yeah um and i had such a good time with it yeah
0: it's really really good um but this is not really good (laughs) no yeah so what else has greenhorn done he his only other claim to fame with doctor who is um an episode next season called the doctor's daughter Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So... uh, Watch me run, pa! (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it's interesting because, like, Uh, I watched this episode and then I remember what Stephen Greenhorn said when he pitched that story, which was... I think about this all the time, by which I mean not at all. Um, He said in an interview in Doctor Who magazine when he was writing The Doctor's Daughter one of the reasons why I've pitched this story is because the doctor as a character can never fundamentally change and I want to change him. And so he wrote an episode where the doctor has a a daughter, but you see, you can kind of see that as like a response to this story, which doesn't change anything that is in further trenching entrenching. Sorry. Um, the show's themes, ideals, characters, in a very stagnant kind of way um the problem is obviously the doctor's daughter also sort of reasserted his character in a very stagnant way so maybe he's just not a very good writer i don't know
1: uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to the doctor's daughter when we get to the doctor's daughter. Um, I do want to talk about what the Lazarus experiment does with the Jones family, though, because um, it was one of those episodes that I used to look back on fondly. Um, because it was one of the few things I could really remembered from it was um, oh, I remember Martha's mum being like really assertive and smart and on the ball and like defensive for Martha. And watching it back today, I was like, oh, no, hmm. no, no, you're, you're just a plot device um, in the most nonsensical way as well.
0: Yes. So in this episode, um, we get to see the Jones family again for the first time since the first episode. And the they are all very archetypal. Um, the lazy son, the well-to-do daughter who's a bit more upper crust. And the conniving bitchy mother, and it's all just so dull.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's an ongoing problem with um this era of the show and mothers. Uh, I don't know what is going on here. Um, but at least with Jackie, um, there was consistent attempts to pair her quote-unquote bitchiness with a humanity, right, um, and I feel like the problem with Martha's mum is that she is just only ever seen to react to the doctor's presence, um, which is an offshoot of the problem with Martha herself in an in a odd, funny little way, um, and, but there's a moment, um, in this episode where, um, you know, Martha shows up to the party and she gives him a big hug and she's like, oh my God, it's so good to see you. And the mom's like, oh, I only saw you last night for the, the birthday party in the beginning of the season. Right. And so, you know, that the doctor's obviously got this whole time travel, get them back to the right point in history stuff down finally. And that's really great. Um, and so it's the next day she lays eyes on the doctor once and she's like, I don't trust that man. And you're like, oh, I, uh, okay, sure, this is odd, but all right. And then when her other daughter is like, oh, I'm going to go up to the roof with uh, the, the Lazarus guy who used to be this old man and has now used magic science to transform himself into a, a younger, still creepy looking man. Um, she's like, oh, don't blink at that. Mm. And it's just... Baffling Because you think, oh, okay, I know that at some point there's a plot point in this series about how Saxon starts feeding Martha's mum misinformation about the Doctor to make her be paranoid and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, obviously I've just forgotten that that happened at some point. But no, that only starts happening after Martha's mum is a hostile, uh, very unpleasant woman to Martha and the Doctor because of their dynamic. And it's just... Mm really confusing.
0: I did you're right. I forgot that it was actually in this story that like she first gets approached. And the mm. <laughs> that scene just makes me laugh because it's just like I have secrets about the doctor. What what are they? Mm. Let me tell you. And he leans in and whispers in her ear and it's just like what are you are you actually trying to appear realistic or menacing because this is just so cartoonish. There's
1: also this whole concept that's kind of irking me, like, when we re- when we first meet Martha in the family, um, you know, you put this in your show notes, but, like, uh, she is the glue of the family, it really feels like she's the one that they all kind of turn to for advice or for whatever, um, which can be both toxic and a good thing, and I think that they show that mostly pretty well in that first episode. Um, but it is very firmly established that Martha's role in the family is the trusted one. And so to go from that to this episode where Martha's mum is just outright, no, I will listen to nothing you say nothing you are telling me, I don't trust the emotion in your voice, I don't trust my daughter's, like, pleading eyes, I know because the government, the mystery government man told me that that man is not to be trusted, that I'm gonna immediately discard our entire dynamic together, um, and it is just, I mean, one, it's, it's just bad writing, it, it doesn't feel particularly organic or interesting or, um, there's no groundwork laid for any of this to happen, uh, and two, uh, and again, this is the limitations of having sort of a bunch of white men, especially in this time, writing the show. But I do find it particularly darkly grim, the idea that a a black family would be just immediately trusting of a governmental body uh, hmm. in the UK at this time. It's just, there's there's so many layers to it that I look at the Jones family and I just... All I see is something that was written to serve the doctor as opposed to what happened with the Tyler family, which was written to serve Rose.
0: Well, it's a very colorblind kind of writing. It's, I I don't think that Russell T, obviously Russell T can't write as a black person because he isn't black, um, which isn't to Mm. say that it shouldn't have been attempted at all, but also, yeah, you're right. It just, a few moments like that are just tone deaf clunkers, especially in this context of like our day and age now. Um, I do like, I, I think your interpretation of her relationship, Martha's relationship with her family isn't wrong, but on that first episode, I also got the impression that she was a sounding board for their problems, but that they didn't even see her as a character or as a, (laughs) I say character as a person. And (laughs) I, I, I like that interpretation of it because of how it reflects in her her relationship with the Doctor where he also treats her the same way as someone to talk to but not someone to see Um, Mm. and if this series were to go a bit harder with Martha asserting her independence with her family as well as with the Doctor then I might think it was better obviously we're getting ahead of it I'm getting ahead of myself Francine's reaction to her daughter I don't feel like is... So, so completely out of character because I kind of like the idea of like her seeing this interloper in the family unit and being like, who is this? Like, I like noticing her daughter for the first time, basically, um, Mm. and being distrustful. But I think it's because it's just so over the top and cliche and just like immediate, she's immediately distrustful. It, it just yeah like there's no nuance or uh, slow progression into this and that's because it's extremely economical storytelling to almost cut it off at the head like we only get this episode a few like a few little scenes in the next one and then we never see them again until the finale so how are we even supposed to understand Martha's relationship with her family if we never see them
1: it's just not very uh Cohesive, let's say.
0: Let's talk about Lazarus, shall we?
1: Yeah, Lazarus is... Um, let's get this out of the way. Uh, no shade. No No offence intended here. Um, Mark Gatiss is incorrectly cast in this role.
0: He's just miscast. I mean, that's not... And that's not to disparage his performance. I actually think he gives, like, a pretty decent, creepy performance. But... The things that are required of this character, he cannot play. And by that, I do mean that he... This is awful to even verbalize as I'm thinking it. But, like, he just doesn't look <laughs> the part. Especially when you consider <laughs> the role that... Tish? Trish? Tish? Tish. 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 Letitia. Letitia. So, Tish. Tish hasn't in this episode because like there is a very significant like plot beat that uh, hinges on her suddenly becoming attracted to the regenerated Lazarus. Now, I don't want to throw shade here, but (laughs) if Mark, if Mark Gatiss went from being an old man to a young, to the man he is in this episode, I wouldn't look at him and be like, I must jump your bones right now
1: yeah it's an odd one especially because there's a scene earlier on where um he's still old and she's obviously working for him and there's this like creepy moment in his office where Mm. he's like oh you smell delightful what perfume is that she's like it's soap and she's so clearly like this is foul this is an old man from a different time treating me differently because i'm a young woman and it's just loaded with all of that stuff that you would expect from the jones uh girls because they are so well in the theory, uh, assertive and, and modern and whatnot. And then, so to just have him emerge looking the way that he does and have her immediately be like, Oh my God. Hi. It's like, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> like it's again, it's just another part of this episode where it's so over the top and caricaturish and unestablished in its writing that you just kind of watch it. Like with, like, I just get a bit numb when I watch it. Cause I, none of this really makes a huge amount of sense to me. Um, and it's a bit of a bummer. And like, I, I don't think it's, it's... Again, it's not a comment on how attractive Mark Gatiss is. I just don't think he has the energy to pull off suave. Um, unless they intentionally understood that his suave that he was putting out was creepy. But mm. then you can't have Tish fall for it in well, that scene. You know? Like, you can't do it both ways.
0: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because, like, you can't just have Tish... He's still a creep, whether he's young or old. And so for her to suddenly be like, oh... What do you want to do tonight? Uh, I don't know. Um, you can't have that and not have it be extremely. Suddenly,
1: sex- my suits chafing me too.
0: <laughs> exactly. Ah, uh, Simpsons quotes will always get in the way. Um, you can't have her do that and not have it be t- it, it's sexist writing. It's like is yeah. it, it is? Am I wrong? Is it? Mar- it's sexist to have a, a female character just suddenly become sexually available because someone de-aged you know yeah
1: i think having especially having that same character who just was um the the voice for a very creepy office dynamic which is very much based in reality to then go to being also the one that's attracted to him is just particularly um unpleasant speaking of unpleasant actually with women in this story um there's a scene where one of the party goers, like the doctor uh, is like, oh my god, he's doing his big speech about like, you must trust me, you've got to get out of here, There's a huge amount of danger, and this woman at the party, she's like, hoity-toity blonde woman, she's like, oh, excuse me, but the only danger here is choking on an olive, and then she gets brutally murdered, because she just stands there watching this Lazarus monster attack her, and it reminded me of the scene in Jurassic World, where the woman that's minding the two boys gets like between dinosaurs before being eaten. And it's like, why is this odd punishment for a woman just inserted into the middle of this sci-fi story?
0: I love that you brought her up because like this is such an odd, random thing, but Olive Woman, as she is known, because that's what she's credited as in the episode, has become like a <laughs> meme joke on Doctor Who Twitter. And I forgot that she was in this episode until this very moment. Um But yeah, like it, her so that's just a weird side to Olive Woman, um, yes, it, and I think your your reference there is extremely apt because this Jurassic World and this episode share a lot of DNA in its treatment of women and of monsters, uh, and men actually yeah. as well. If I was to go a bit yeah. further,
1: uh, yeah. So speaking of the way Lazarus Experiment handles, um. It's characters. Uh, I do want to quickly touch on Martha's status as a companion before we wrap this one up.
0: Look, yeah, you're absolutely right to bring that up. And it is ridiculously annoying that we are at episode six of this season and Martha's sort of status as a companion is still, like, being debated. The The scene at the top of the episode where she steps out of the TARDIS and um, she's at home... It's a, it's a teaser for sure. And I think that it's this particular story is like a teaser for some potential drama, but it's not mind or explored at all. Um, so any potential of it being an interesting story is just thrown out the window. And what we are left with instead is just a very annoying, like, beat where the- Martha has to prove herself again as a companion. And we'll go into further detail about this next week. So next week next episode which is coming <laughs> up right now um but it yeah like it, when you and i don't want to com- keep comparing with rose but like when you compare with how easily an accepted rose was into the TARDIS team and all the different hoops martha has to jump through um it just yeah it just seems to further deepen martha's uh just uh, letting credit lending credence to what i was saying before about like martha's role with her family and the doctor she just is not willing to stick up for herself and the doctor is just coming across as a a dickhead (laughs) a blind fool who can't see what's in front of him um Mm, it's yeah it's another frustrating aspect of another frustrating episode
1: yeah, I completely agree. I also had a moment uh, towards the end when um, they do the, the bell trick to uh, get Lazarus to fall from a great height and, and die or whatever. Um, and Martha and Tish are left there kind of like holding each other after they both nearly fell off the tower themselves. Um, and instead of it being two sisters having... a you know, the like I what I would imagine a very first time experience of like, oh my God, we just fought a giant monster mm. and nearly died together and they're holding each other. And the only thing they can talk about is that's the doctor for you. And it just struck me as like, I don't know if Martha has ever had a conversation that wasn't concerned with the doctor. Um, yeah. And it's, it's starting to become a real problem.
0: Because, yeah, it... After this episode, we just do not understand her relationship with her family at all because all they ever talk about is the Doctor. And it just becomes very clear from this episode and the episode that follows it that this isn't a season about Martha in the way that seasons one and two were about Rose, where we saw things through Rose's eyes. This is definitely all about the Doctor as far as I'm concerned. And that's a problem.
1: It is. It is a problem. Um, um, so, uh, I guess you would consider the Lazarus experiment a failure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like I, I, I have nothing good to say about it. I think there's some interesting potential stuff here. I think that I think that the there's signs of interesting writing in the interplay between the Doctor and Lazarus. Um, but then if I think about those scenes any closer, I just sort of feel like it's just fancy writing with pretty hollow ideas behind them. Um, I think that like they're good themes and they're good Doctor Who themes as well, but yeah, they're just, it's, it's just, it's just not good. And also uh, this is just such a small point, but worth bringing up that Scorpion, like, Cool idea again. Cool idea. But this is another episode where I feel like the monster design has let down the story. But this time I also don't really like the story. So it's just another bit of shit on a pile of shit.
1: Yeah. There's a reason why I called it a Resident Evil monster in my plot description. And it's because in Resident Evil, it is this like constant trope that once the bad guy starts mutating, they just can like produce mass on mass, like uh, it is insane how much their body just like quadruples in size or whatever it is, uh, and that's all I could think about when I was looking at this giant CGI scorpion running around. Um, yeah, look, I I don't I it, I guess the best way I could put it, it's not that I don't care for the Lazarus experiment, it's that I just don't care. Uh, so I'm gonna give the Lazarus experiment a C.
0: Yeah, like if I gave it a really bad score, it would seem like I care about it. Um, (laughs) so I don't want to do that. So I'm also just going to give it like a C minus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just skates by as another episode of Doctor Who. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, we are going to shimmy right along to part two of our discussion focused on 42.
0: You know what that, what that discussion made me want to do? What? Watch Resident Evil. (laughs)
1: Oh my god, Resident Evil's so fucking good.
0: Shoot! <laughs> 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 Destroy signal, fucking on! Now that is
1: hot! I'll stand the heat. Shit, what's going Who are you? I'm the doctor. Mum, it's me, it's Martha! Get out of
0: there! stop it! That's enough!
1: It's brilliant. I
0: know! I'll save you! It's your
1: fault. What are you? Doctor! We're
0: stuck here. 22
1: is episode 7 of series 3 of the Doctor Who revival. It is directed by old mate Graham Harper and written by even older mate Chris Chibnall. Uh, I believe this is the first Chris Chibnall episode in uh, Doctor Who history. So that's... um. Uh historic. Now, this week, uh the plot sees uh, the doctor and Martha respond to a distress call on a spaceship which is very slowly collapsing or rather like falling into a massive sun. Um the ne- aim of the episode uh is an allusion to the fact that they only have 42 minutes. Before the ship falls into the sun. Uh, When they get there, they meet, um, you know, they've got like the usual sort of like ragtag crew on a spaceship that Doctor Who often likes to do, where there's like, you know, the married couple at the helm of everything, the engineer, the quippy guy. It's pretty standard Doctor Who affair. Um, They split up with the Doctor trying to help the captain of the ship sort of fix the engines, while Martha and a lovely boy whose name I forget try to, uh, I guess, solve pub quiz riddles in order to unlock the code to the doors, it, it works in the context, kind of, um, meanwhile the ship is being, uh attacked by what ends up being the sun itself, because the sun is a sentient being that the ship has been scooping fuel energy from, and in the process of doing that, it scooped up some of its consciousness uh, this consciousness has now been transferred into the crew members, uh, who run at extremely high temperatures, and burn people with their eyes, and are constantly walking around saying, burn with me, um Um, hijinks ensue a lot of running up and down corridors the doctor ends up getting infected by the sentient son martha almost dies in an escape pod sequence uh until um they save the day and the episode ends
0: brilliant thank you james for another rapid fire look at (laughs) 42 um james question for you this episode's called 42 right and that's a, a clever little reference that maybe people won't be aware of to a television show called 24, where everything happens in 24 hours. Um, do you think that this is an experiment worth repeating, is my question.
1: Um, uh, it's definitely the thing about the episode that I have like the warmest feelings towards, I suppose, uh, because I think it is like not inherently a bad concept. Um, I don't mind when Doctor Who tries to do something that is a bit experimental and a bit different. Obviously it has uh, wildly varying degrees of success. If you look at something like um, Sleep No More, for, for example, um, where they tried to do a, a found footage thing. Um, but, you know, the concept of the Doctor and Martha land in a crashing ship that only has 42 minutes before, you know, uh, death is inherently fine. Um, I, I, think Chibnall starts with a decent enough baseline here. Um, the problem, I guess, and again, this is going to be a quite like our Lazarus uh, experiment discussion from just before folks. But like the issue again, is that like, what is built on top of a semi decent idea for an episode is just a really average 42 minutes of Dr. Who. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think that this, this is the only time you're going to hear this, but I think the episode written by Chris Chibnall was better.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, look, sassiness aside, I do probably think this is Chibnall's best
0: episode.
1: And that's saying oh, something. No, 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 no. Wait, I completely take that back. I forgot that he wrote uh, Revolution and Resolution. So, and I did actually quite like those episodes. So, I I will take back my backhanded compliment um, <laughs> and simply say that this was a Chris Chibnall episode. Um, it, and like, it has every single hallmark that we have uh, sort of grown to um, dislike in his
0: era of the show. It does. And if I was to be positive, and I... You know i actually quite like this episode in thought in theory um <laughs> i like this episode to watch as well because it's does what uh, the last experiment was sort of doing as in being an action thriller i think this episode does a lot better by just the inherent pace and uh the c- constant plot that the formula of the like 42 minutes and the real time thing uh injects into the episode um so on a purely adrenaline adrenaline rush aspect great love it i love the production design on the episode i think the ship looks amazing i think the visual effects as well look pretty good as well Yep. um like yeah. it, it's a it's a very well put together well directed episode by graham harper but if you strip away and this is Also very much a case with Chris Chibnall's era of the show where everything looks great, but it's all so very hollow underneath the immediate thrill of watching an episode. Um, And you only have to look at, I think it was you who highlighted this, like the way in which the characters are introduced and the dialogue that accompanies it where it's like, this is so first draft. Like you can imagine him sitting at his desk computer writing this and being like, well, that's lunch and just fucking (laughs) off for three hours and then coming back and being like, I'm writing Doctor Who. It just... Yeah. There's so much of this that's like slapdash character, mostly characterization, I think. Although even its themes uh, aren't, you know, necessarily there or necessarily interesting. But...
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that there's a particular way that um, Chibnall writes Doctor Who, um, which is odd given that the way he wrote at least the first season of Broadchurch, I never watched the second two, so I can't speak to them. There was a humanity in the first season of Broadchurch. Um, I think that the characters in that show were obviously... um, you know, very archetypal, uh, archetypal, archetypal, um, but they were relatable enough. And whether that was just the performances well, or a bit of the script as well is, is a bit of a, a mystery to me, I'd say. But the issue with Forty Two is that it's indicative of everything he goes on to do with Doctor Who itself, which is that he becomes workmanlike when he writes Doctor Who. It is almost mechanically mm. precise. Humanization, um, to the point where it's always, there's always quips, there's always someone, uh, I think, you know, the one I pointed out to you was, uh, when the Doctor first meets the crew, one of the crew members is like, hello, I'm crew member A, and the Doctor's like, well, what are you still standing here for, crew member A, and it's just, it felt to me exactly like something Jody Whittaker would say in the show, because, Chibnall has one speed with the Doctor Uh, and I think you get flashes of something else in this episode when he does a bit of screaming about the foils of humanity Uh, but like to your point though even then the thematic work of this episode is like paper thin and Mm. so you just end up with a very outside of the visuals which I do want to get to in a minute because I think you're right, they are fantastic just a very uh, workman-like episode of Doctor Who
0: yeah and to go back slightly to what you were talking about with Broadchurch, um, I think that what that season, that first season benefits from for Chibnall is because, like, it's a place and a location and a concept and he's locked into these characters that he set himself for. So, he kind of has no choice but to develop them because there's nothing else to do. Like, he can't just, th- he or for whatever reason, he can't just throw in a new element or a new character or whatever. He's like... Set, world, go. With Doctor Who, it's not that simple. Even if you have a large cast of characters like he has introduced for his last two seasons, each episode has a whole new cast of supporting characters and there's so much stuff to sort of get distracted by each week. Um And this is no exception where, like, it, this, this episode in and of itself, like, almost exists in a vacuum of its own in that it just does not f- carry over any of the On the whole, doesn't carry over any of the journey for the Doctor and Martha from the six episodes prior. Um, And you could... No. This episode just kind of exists in a weird vacuum all of its own. Um, Which, uh,
1: if I could respond to that directly. Um, There was something that you put in your show notes about how Martha gets a love interest in this episode and it should be made more of a thing, especially considering the uh, context of Martha's story with the Doctor outside of this episode. In that sense, it really reminded me of The Girl in the Fireplace in that it's um, sort of a Mm. mid-season story that feels like it's just been plopped out of a different plotline entirely um, where all of the pre-existing dynamics are thrown out the window um, but instead where Um, you know, uh, go on the fireplace sort of came up at a time when you needed a bit of a refresher with these characters Um, because of where we're at with Martha's journey, having such a disconnected story just feels like wasted time for her.
0: Well, exactly. We only get a season with her and the idea that this is just another episode where they're just hanging around. it. You, I, I can't help just personally looking at the writers and wanting to slap them on the face and be like, what were you doing? You had Martha fucking Jones and you did nothing with it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it, it does very much feel that way, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Um, And, you know, like, because Chris Chibnall isn't the showrunner at this point, it's just as much Russell T, Um, but... A lot of the flaws in Chibnall's writing that we will go on to note uh, are entirely present here, and it is just so frustrating that in almost ten years between this episode and his actual taking over the show, not a lot of change or development in his style or writing or approach to Doctor Who has happened. And, I mean, this is just points to a fundamental truth that I've come to realise about Doctor Who, which is that there are good writers, and then there are good Doctor Who writers. And sometimes they yeah. they mix, but oftentimes, if someone is a good writer outside of Doctor Who, that means nothing when it comes to Doctor Who. Because Ch- Chibnall wrote, you know, Broadchurch, which is great, and f- completely fumbles the ball every time he tries to write Doctor Who. So... I, but yeah. You like Resolution and Revolution, I also do, but I also have, think I have massive irrevocable irref- flaws, so whatever. Yeah.
1: He also did that uh, Torchwood story I
0: watched recently, didn't he? he? See, this is the thing. He wrote my absolute favourite episode of Torchwood, and I keep forgetting about that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: which is like you you talked about what he'd written before Doctor Who or during or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I feel like there was something else Chibnall that I enjoyed. And I was like, yeah, like there was that really weird episode of uh um Torchwood which was dark and interesting and human. And yep. to yeah, to come to his writing in Doctor Who, you just kind of like, uh, he just seems to buckle under the pressure of the show. I, I can't really think to put it any other way. And I don't mm-hmm. know that's hugely projecting onto him as a person, but um, I, I I, don't know what's going on here. Um, uh, look, to, to give it a positive, though, uh, I want to touch on what you said before. Um, aesthetically, this, this is a really... It's not a gorgeous episode, it's an ugly episode, uh, in a really smart way. Like, everyone's dirty and grimy and sweaty, everything is so washed out in the red of the sun that they're constantly getting closer to, um, it's such a brilliant use of set design and colour and, uh, lived in kind of, like, uh, very, like, Ridley Scott alien era grime, um, and it just, yeah, it just absolutely deserves to be noted that, um, Graham Harper produces some pretty decent shots here.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, there is one particular shot that we'll talk to later, um, but I think you know what I'm referring to. But yes, he has done a great job of just creating a very lived-in world. I, I almost want to say, because it's-, it's very well established that this story takes place in the same universe, even if it's not noted in the story, it takes place in the same universe as the Impossible Planet from the l- previous season. Um yeah, yeah. To the point where I think they were almost considering having, like, the Ood or the Slothene, weirdly, be servants um, on this station. What they would have added to the story, I have simply no idea. But anyway, what could have been? Mm. Um, so, I, I actually feel like this is a, a step above the design of that episode because, like, that episode relied on a very clean flat pack put together base. Whereas this is like proper lived in, like you say, Ridley Scott, I think is a great um, reference point. Um, It's just like peak Russell T spaceship design for me because it's just like disgustingly lived in. And it's a thing I actually missed when Moffat took over and everything became kind of sleek and slick and like spaceships Mm. suddenly became like, you know, you saw in victory of the Daleks where it was like just silver (laughs) walls And you're like, it was just
1: like a big empty silver room. And I was like, is this a spaceship?
0: <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> exactly. It, it just feels so unoccupied. Um, yeah. And if, for all that we will talk and pull apart Russell T., I think he did get a sense. I, this is one of the things I loved about him as a showrunner is that he insisted that every single episode have humans in it. Um. And I really enjoy that he thinks about how humanity and humans fit into spaces and make sure that they are, if nothing else, like, they feel real. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I... I Yeah, I I don't disagree with any of that. I I think it is 42's uh, strongest selling point um, is is that sort of uh, aesthetic charm. Um, Because when I think about... uh, Like, you've put here in your notes something that I didn't know about this episode. Um, You said, like, uh, it was originally that the ship was supposed to be called the SS Icarus. Uh, And I want to use that as a jumping off point for the thematic work of this episode. Because, you know, the whole, like, oh, flew too close to the sun. And it's like, yes... I mean, on a surface level, the ship is flying too close to the sun. But what does that mean, Chibnall? <laughs> like, you, like you can't just be like, "Oh, I'm adopting the literal definition of a metaphor." <laughs> you know?
0: I think, yeah, like you could look at the crew and the, their like the scoop of the sun's fuel. At, like, there's obviously an. <laughs> in a very broad sense an ecological message here of like don't take from the earth because the earth's going to come back to you even though that message is muddled because it's a fucking sun um you know yeah. <laughs> whatever so what does
1: that have to do with um like pride and like the, the you know the metaphor of Icarus like <laughs> exactly and they aren't overextending
0: yeah. themselves they are just crew members on a ship doing a job and who have made a very grave error in judgment but yeah there isn't a yeah, they 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 haven't gotten yeah, like you said, there's no pride. It, it it just doesn't fit beyond the aesthetics of having a ship falling into the sun. A good choice, yes. but. Y- yeah you, you well, see the it. problems like
1: the, like the the bones of this episode are fantastic like uh the, like you said the short time, it gives it a sense of urgency uh the just the sheer image that it opens with of that ship slowly careening towards this massive sun is genuinely fantastic um but again it just it just doesn't really do much with that beyond what you would do with a story about a ship falling towards the sun um and the idea of it being a sentient ball of fire is good Mm. um and i think the idea of in it it putting a sort of anti-capitalist pro-environmental story into that framework is good um not great good i think it's i think it's a safe bet let's say right Um, and he still manages to kind of do nothing with it um you know there's a certain point where the doctor gets the sun uh sort of possessed into him and now that he's you know fully uh, aware of the fact that they've been uh scooping fuel off of its surface which has been considered illegal in this system um you know he has this big righteous like ah humans you just couldn't help yourselves you filthy bastards kind of big moment and you're like is that the sun talking because this doctor is so pro-human for the most part that like the characterization of that doesn't really flow well for me in that moment. Um, there's like a righteousness to his indignation at their actions, which especially if you pair it with, um, uh, Satan pit, impossible planet, um, storyline because of the whole shared universe and whatnot it's like the way he treated the humans who were doing something risky and dangerous in that was like oh this is fucking brilliant of you this is crazy and then these guys doing something risky and dangerous is is hubris and and wrong
0: well i would just there is a clear distinction between those two crews in that one was in the effort of science and exploration and discovery and one is a job and It's industrial in, uh, essence. Uh, So... Um,
1: There were people on that human crew, though, in The Impossible Planet that specifically talk about using that energy source for war and capitalism.
0: Sure. And I think the Doctor definitely, if given the chance, wouldn't have agreed with that person's particular interest. But that wasn't the crew's interest. We're getting off on a technicality. Um...
1: Yeah, look, I'm, I'm just saying that, like, I, I think yeah. that the way it's like what we talked about with Lazarus Experiment, the way the doctor treats people for certain actions in certain circumstances varies so wildly, even across David Tennant's own era, um, that it's just a really jarring thing to have to try to incorporate about this character who is, you know, consistently considered the voice of reason and the voice for good without a consistent set of morals.
0: Well, it's always wildly inconsistent, right? And if we're going to talk, like, holistically here, it's because The Doctor is written by a different person every week in so many different forms of media, by so many different writers. They are a myth in and of themselves, and so they are going to be given the politics of whatever writer is writing them that week. Even if it's with this veneer of, like, left-leaning, environmentally sound, um, you know, rhetoric, um, you can end up with an episode like... uh, Kablam, where it has a really insidious, (laughs) ill-thought-out undertone to it. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, I I get it. Then at that point, I'm just kind of like, well, why have a showrunner? But um, look, it is what it is. Um, (laughs) uh, I I think that, yeah, so like the environmentalism stuff kind of falls a bit flat. The anti-capitalism falls a bit flat. Um, There is you know, technically a love story at the heart of this. The captain's husband is the first one who gets infected and she has this whole moment, which is weird because she says to the doctor, oh, I'm a straight shooter. You can give it to me straight because I need to know the facts here. And the doctor's like, okay, fine. Your husband's dead. This infection is too strong. It's completely destroyed whatever remained of him. I'm sorry. And she's like, okay, great. Thank you for letting me know that. And then she sees her husband and she's like, oh, what does the doctor know? He's probably still in there. And it's like, I just... Like, sure, I I suppose, like, the idea of, like, the headstrong person being swayed by love for, you know, their partner is very tropey and not necessarily a problem, but again, it's because of the way everything's written here. Um, Characters don't really operate as humans as Mm. so much as they operate as exposition um, devices. And so when they do these things, instead of having any sort of like characterization humanity to paper over the fact that they're a walking trope, you just get a very mechanical like, oh, now this is what you do in the story because this is what your character would do at this point. Do you know what I mean?
0: I do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to pivot slightly from this point to a very specific note about martha um which is that this so in conjunction with this episode and lazarus experiment these are the two episodes that establish her as a ongoing companion Uh, side note to that i do think it's really cool and like refreshing that there's just like no specific rose mentions in these episodes. I just noted that,
1: uh, uh, yeah, I do agree that it's refreshing to not have Rose explicitly brought up, but when the doctor gives her, like he finally does that thing to her phone, you know, seven episodes in, he deigns to let her call her mother sometimes. Um, and so he gives her phone that thing that he gave Rose in episode two, which is the ability to like crawl across space and time. And while it's not explicitly mentioning Rose, you can't help but be like, Oh, this is that thing he did for Rose, um, because of the way that Martha has been positioned as not Rose, but the new Rose, do you know what I mean?
0: Well, yeah, like, it's the same is... thing with the key as well. Like it's that same mm. point, but it's given a lot more, like the significance is because this happened to Rose once before. So now she's a proper companion. That's, uh. Yeah, exactly. Like that, Rose that... is
1: forever the yardstick, even if they don't explicitly
0: make her the yardstick at times, you know? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so, like, to follow on from that, obviously, the ongoing story with Martha has been her unrequited love for the Doctor. And as you know and brought up before, uh, it's just so frustrating that we get a-, a romantic interest in this episode for, like, a one-off thing that's just gone and all of the underlying romance between the Doctor. And it- it's almost like I'm being angry at this episode for not doing the thing that we don't like. Um, but <laughs> I-, I don't <laughs> like that it's not at least consistent with those things. And that this week the romantic underlying notion is uh, on the romance. The, sorry. The romance underpinning their relationship isn't, uh, pre- it's just not present at all. But what is present is, um, the idea that going on from gridlock that ro uh, sorry, not Rose, that Martha is a believing disciple of the doctor. And you get a couple of interesting notes of, the Martha saying in one scene when she's been separated from the doctor, you know, you don't know him, and using the words "I believe in him" specifically, and I find it interesting because it's later counterpointed with the a scene of the doctor, it's like burning up. Uh, he's like losing control to the sun th- creature inside of him, and you know, he's like, "I could kill you if it takes control of me," and I am scared. It's really harrowing, and David Tennant gives it his all. It's, it, I don't think it needs to be talked about but i do think he turns into a couple of really good performances this week um but then martha's response to him is to like just stay calm you saved me i return the favor just believe in me and it's i like that this episode is is acknowledging these themes of blind faith and uh in a very non-secular way this week um belief in humans belief in people Um, Which I think Redlock was doing less well. Um, Yeah. But also, it just would have been nice to see how the Doctor had... Like, how he had changed in his appreciation of Martha. Because he has obviously gone through a change. He's let Martha on board. He's opening up more. But this instance of of her assuming that he has belief in her just goes uncommented on. And you know by episode's end the status quo has been reasserted she's the disciple again the way she holds out her hands to receive the key is very communion like it just took me back to like my school days um but mm. yeah like we are seeing all this stuff happening from Martha's perspective but without the like i just don't feel like the doctor's in that relationship at all when he's also on the surface going through these beats that would say that he would he's opening up to her do you know what i mean
1: I do. I, I do understand where you're coming from with that one. Um, I know that it's it's obviously always a dangerous game to be like, oh, well, if I was writing it, this is what I would do. Um, but I do maybe wonder, because I, I like what you're saying about the fact that he has to trust her, right, to, to save him at that point. Um, what that actually means in terms of the story, though, is just she pushes a button on a machine that's essentially just a medical device anyway. Um, There's no real need for... Like, it's not in her that he's trusting. It's in the machine to do its job, is Mm. what I got out of that scene. It felt very impersonal. And so the fact that he didn't really react to any of it kind of tracks with the fact that it's... Trust me in dialogue only. Do you know what I mean? It's it's very much a tell-don't-show kind of moment. Um, And so I wonder... If the point in which Martha gets trapped in an escape pod, which gets jettisoned towards the sun, and it's it's one, of, I know, it's I think it's your favorite shot of the episode, but the two of them are separated by this, like, you know, uh, an, an airlock. And so she's banging on the window, being like, oh my God, doctor. And, you know, she can't hear him, but he's saying, I'll save you, I'll save you over and over again, as he's just watching her get further and further away. Mm. I wonder how the episode would have been if you flipped that and put him in the pod and had her God. being like, I will save you. And then he actually does have to trust that she will save him.
0: Oh my God. You blown my mind.
1: Right? Like, just, you make that change. I mean, and really, that, that entire sequence only lasts for about, you know, what, 10 minutes of the runtime. Like, it's just, it's an action set piece, essentially. Um, And granted, then you don't get some decent-ish Martha stuff with her mum, in which we'll get to in a second, but I, there's still a way you could have done that stuff. Um, but if you'd put him in the pod with the guy, and he's, like, freaking out, trying everything he can to solve it, and the guy's like, like look, we're either going to die here or your friend is going to do something to save us because she seems pretty fucking determined or whatever, you can really draw attention to the fact that he is at her mercy at this point. And his faith in her, it will then be rewarded by the fact that she saves him as opposed to what they do, which is just kind of a bit of a nothing.
0: It's such a, it, yeah. Like what you're describing is such a common companion beat where like they have to step up to the plate and become, become the doctor. Essentially. You're just now reminding me that even though Martha walks the earth in her finale, even that action is never sort of like the, the, she isn't saving the world at the end of the day because the doctor steps in and actually does the saving. Um, yeah. ah, fuck. That would have been so interesting to see. Oh, I'm so annoyed now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the problem with armchair writing. Is it like, Oh now, now you're like, Oh, wait a minute. They should have done this 10 years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just another episode where Martha is like, like I don't know. She's, she's like, she's, she's just Martha and I hate that that's become a pejorative in my eyes because it's like you said before, like, yeah, the romance is gone, but because of that belief stuff, still very much being there, um, you know, well, There's just nothing particularly revolutionary going on with Martha here. We don't really learn much about her um, outside of how she feels about the Doctor. She does have an odd dynamic with her mum in this episode, who makes a return from uh, Lazarus Project, because obviously she can call her now. And so she has to call her mum initially to get answers to the pub quiz code-breaking device, which is about the Beatles or some shit. And she's so outright rude to her mother on the phone and granted yeah like we know that she's in like a a dangerous situation but to me it it felt more like the way Rose would interact with her mum whereas Martha to me always struck me as being good and exciting because she's a woman she's not a girl anymore and so I feel like there would be a particular level of tact that Mm. Martha as a character being smart would deploy to get those answers out a lot faster especially knowing that her mum is such a stickler for the fact that you know she doesn't like when her daughter acts out apparently um, and so that, that scene was a bit odd to me. And then later on, when Martha is trapped in the pod, um, you know, she calls her mum to tell her that she loves her. And Martha's mum has zero fucking chill in this moment. Like, her daughter is crying down the phone, calls her, like, okay. This is the situation. Your child calls you out of the blue crying and starts being like, I just know I don't tell you that I love you enough. I'm sorry. We should have talked more. I do love you. You know, please, can you just talk to me about anything right now? I just need to hear anything. And the mum's response to this is, is the doctor with you? And it's just so horrible that everything in Martha's life has to come down to the doctor. There's no moments, there's no conversations where it's just Martha and something in her life.
0: And I hate it. (laughs) Yeah. I'll admit, I didn't think about it nearly as deeply as you have other than I just like that we get some more scenes between Martha and her mother, but you are right that it's repeating a lot of the same rose patterns again with Martha here. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with the way that she talks to her mum in that scene in particular, only because I, the urgency of the episode and the, the time limit means I, I think I would even act this that way if I was the, her agent in that position. But mm. well, that's a moot point. Um, <laughs> but yes, it, you said to me earlier today, like, does any conversation with Martha pass the Bechdel test? And I was like, yeah. probably not. Um, Probably not at all. Um,
1: To your exact point, just to quickly jump in, like you you just brought up before about how in the finale she walks the earth, literally only to have conversations about the Doctor. Like, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) You know, it's it's her entire arc is I love this man, even if he doesn't love me back, and that's what makes him special. And it's like,
0: okay, uh, uh, (laughs) look, you can criticize. Clara and Amy for doing this, rightly, probably, but, like, it all starts here, folks. It all started with Rose, if we're honest.
1: Um, I would argue that Clara is the literal antidote to these problems, but we will get to Clara in a few years' time.
0: <laughs> yes, we will. Um, I'll just, like, bring her up every now and again to annoy you.
1: Best companion ever!
0: <sighs> you said it. Um, <laughs> look, yes, it's- it's not great. Again, we have this bitch mother in Francine and it's just it's it's, in, it's less interesting or I'm less willing to tolerate it because she isn't nearly as warm and kind as Jackie was able to be and didn't get the time that Jackie did and also isn't played by Camille Kajuri who is just beautiful. Um,
1: Well, uh, to respond to that directly, though, the woman who plays uh, Martha's mother, I recently saw her in the Netflix series um, uh, uh, Bridgerton, Bridgerton. which, you know, terrible, terrible TV show, but... Absolutely compelling garbage. Um, Really had a good time with it. If you just want to zone out to something, it gets my recommendation. Um, But she is also in that playing a very motherly figure who is also quite stern at times because she has to be quite matriarchal. Um, But there is so much humor and warmth and kindness and strength in her performance in that show. And so I know this woman is capable of delivering that kind of performance. I think the script is just entirely uninterested in making her a three-dimensional character.
0: Oh, totally. She's functionary, um, and the only great moment that she has is still to come, I think. But we'll get to that very specific scene that nobody knows what I'm talking about. Um, what a teaser! <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Do you have any other sort of thoughts, feelings about Forty Two? Uh,
1: not, not really. No, like, I was just no. thinking, like, man, we haven't really talked about 42 for very long. But, like, honestly, I, I just... I have so little to say about this episode. Um, and, like, I literally just watched it before we jumped on to record. Um, and it's already leaving my mind. It's Do- just... Yeah.
0: Yeah. Can I leave us all with this? Of course. So, I think that there's a peak Chibnall scene in this episode that you could use to describe how he does character, how he does story... Uh, how he does jokes. Um, and okay. it is the bit player, Arena, who's, like, standing at a locker. And she's, like... She's been ordered to do something. And she's, like, has this monologue to herself where she's, like... Oh, nobody takes me for seriously. Just mm-hmm. order me around. Sweep the floor. Make drinks. And then she's, like... Oh, kill me now. And then she <laughs> shuts the door. <laughs> and there's someone on the other side... <laughs> and he's like burn with me and kills her and i'm just like in uh, not only do i not know who this character is i don't give a shit about them and also that's a bad joke and so on the nose and so fucking cheesy um and i hate it but 42 is okay generally if i don't think about it <laughs>
1: okay sure all right uh i am gonna give 42 uh like a c plus
0: yeah fair enough i'm probably gonna give it a c uh which is pretty generous
1: yeah, look. Sorry, folks. Uh, to come back to these two episodes in particular, look, at least it gave us, like, a pretty cruisy night to just ease back into recording. Because, um, yeah, it's, it's been a little while. Maybe your boys were a bit rusty. But we got through this in the end. Um, those were certainly two episodes of Doctor Who. And uh, in two weeks' time, we're going to be back with... Um Just some real scolding hot takes on what is considered to be some of the best Doctor Who of all time uh, with the Family of Blood
0: two-parter. Hmm. Is that a hint for your feelings about next week when you say, said to be, a good episode? Uh,
1: Look, I'm just just saying, um, nothing should surprise you anymore on Two Hearts. Uh, We are all over the shop with our opinions on uh, what's considered good Doctor Who these days.
0: That's very very true. And in an alternate universe, we might have watched these two episodes and been like, "Peak Doctor Who should have been cancelled yeah. after this."
1: Exactly. Who who knows? That's that's half the fun. Um I have always and will always be James. You can find me on Twitter at @omgmorejames.
0: And I am Callum for now, but may change that later because I've changed my name <laughs> once before. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatricalum.
1: As always, folks, uh, stay kind, be good to each other, uh, be safe out in the world, and yeah, we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time.
0: Bye!
1: Low enthusiasm!
0: Oh, I'm back on Earth. Um, uh, uh, thanks, Doctor. Bye.
1: Oh, there's no place like it, Martha. You're gonna love what's out there. Those doors. I bet it's gonna make you feel so fulfilled and loved like you've never felt before. Oh, but Doctor, it's my bedroom. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, Martha. I don't fucking like you anymore. <laughs> Goodbye. And then he leaves. And then he comes back not because he wants to be with her again, but because he's like, wait a minute, was there something on the news? <laughs> You know what I'm saying though, right?
0: <laughs> it's just, I can't pick up what you're putting down. You've, you've taken it to a whole different level.
1: But he doesn't even like, okay. Like it's the whole, like he gets in the TARDIS, leaves her there. Yeah. Right. And then he only rematerializes because he's like, oh, wait a minute. I heard something weird on the news. Not, oh, wait a minute. I changed my mind. You should definitely come with me.
0: It's a good old joke, isn't it?
1: Oh, well, everything to do with Martha is treated like a fucking joke.
0: I like how you did your Yaz voice <laughs> for Martha. <laughs> <laughs> anyway <clears throat>